0: Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We have a great list of links for you today, and let's get right to it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link.
1: I have a headline that is so good I could not pass it up. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Lay it on me. Fruit that smells like butt could charge your phone. (laughs) So
0: not just fruit could charge your phone. Only fruit that smells like butt. Well, not only, but in particular, fruit oh, it's that smells like good. butt.
1: Well, do you have any guesses as to which fruit this might be? Well, so
0: there's only one fruit I know of that's supposed to smell really bad, and that's durian. That's fruit. the one. But it does does it smell like butt? I've never heard it described that way. I've always heard it's just, oh, it's stinky. It's such
1: an interesting fruit. So I come from a Vietnamese background where durian is occasionally consumed by aficionados and or the brave. Right. (laughs) And so I've been around it. And for me, it smells like straight up methane. And if you smell a gas leak in your home, that is the smell I most closely associate with the fruit. Now, as to the taste, I cannot actually give any anecdotal evidence because I will not put that in my mouth. Because it smells like straight up methane. Well,
0: and methane is like the fart gas, right? Yes. Like that. Okay. So
1: that may be where the butt connection's coming in. It is so famously stinky right that some subways in Hong Kong have outright banned consumption on the subway. Right,
0: cuz it's so awful for everybody right. around you. And it's
1: pervasive. It's it's the kind of smell that gets into everything and once it's in your nostrils it's almost like the smell of death where like you may have to like smear some menthol under right. your nose just to like <laughs> clear it out. It's super potent, but you know, people who love it say it kind of has a cheese-like flavor and texture Ugh. and it's <laughs> creamy and it's a delicacy, but finally for those of us who hate eating it. It is an energy source ready for the tapping. Wow. So Vincent G. Gomez, who's an associate professor at the University of Sydney, he co-authored a new scientific paper that describes a novel method for extracting durian and jackfruit bio-waste because they're kind of related. Oh, are they? First. I didn't know mm-hmm. that.
0: I've eaten jackfruit. Yeah, okay. jackfruit right. is a
1: fantastic meat alternative. Like, it's one of those, like, it takes up flavorings and seasonings really well. Like, jackfruit barbecue tacos are kind of a thing here in Austin as well. Because...
0: Yeah, I, oh, I have a whole new thing I have to go try yeah. now. I had no idea.
1: But basically for this, we're kind of looking at using it as an energy source, specifically as an upgrade from batteries. So you know that batteries they have two electrodes, they're separated by an electrolyte, which is just a chemical substance that serves as a catalyst so that a chemical reaction inside the battery can occur. But then once all of that electrical energy has been used, the battery is dead. We've all experienced a dead battery. Sure, yeah. So we have rechargeable batteries. That allows the internal chemical reaction to run in both directions so it becomes more cyclical in nature, a little bit of an upgrade. But eventually they can't hold a charge very well. They need to be replaced. So it's only, you know, a bit of an upgrade there. So what's even better are capacitors, which use static electricity instead of chemical energy to store energy. So to create a capacitor, it's kind of like rubbing a latex balloon against your hair and you create that. Sure, the static static electricity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens is an electrical charge builds up inside as the negative and positive charges build up on the metal plates inside the capacitor. And while these are better than batteries in some ways, and only some ways, (laughs) I mean, they don't contain toxic metals. They can be recharged pretty much indefinitely. They just don't store the same amount of electrical energy as a typical battery does weight for weight.
0: So are these, is this something that's on the market? I've never heard of these, like something that uses static electricity.
1: I think capacitors are used for certain things and certain applications.
0: Right, so you're talking about like, these are the same thing as the little capacitors inside a chip. Yes, exactly. I thought this was like a standalone thing you could buy on the market. These are
1: just different types of like energy sources that we're using right now, but you know, still have room for improvement, which is where butt fruit comes into play. Right, we're getting to butt fruit, I'm (laughs) assuming. Right, right, we're we're working our way up to butt fruit. (laughs) So now we're looking at supercapacitors. So these have larger metal plates inside the average capacitor. Each is coated with a porous substance, like activated charcoal. And what that does is it creates a larger surface area for storing more charges. So it's a texture thing. Yep. What they basically did is Gomez and his team synthesized a carbon aerogel which are kind of like those silica packets that you get for desiccants and Mm -hmm. things like that. And they've tried this in the past with like watermelons, pomelo. But the jackfruit and the durian held more promise for this kind of developing technology because of the porosity and plenty of organic
0: waste is derived from these because
1: durians are the devil's fruit.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I imagine that we could grow them and there wouldn't be any competition for people going like, oh no, you're stealing our food source. <laughs> like, no, no, you can have those. Like mean, go you right know, ahead. I'm sure that we could
1: cordon off a portion for those who want to continue enjoying these culinary delights. <laughs> right. we we'll save sure a there, little bit.
0: Right. And I'm sure there are
1: native animal species, different primates and such that really dig on it. See, but okay, so
0: do the supercapacitors stink? Like at that point, have you <laughs> processed out what's already in there? Or is this like your phone is going to have just a Faint butt smell for the rest of your life (laughs) Well, depending
1: on whether you store your pocket, you know, the back pocket That's of true. where your you phone is, just... you may already be dealing with that butt smell. Yeah. And right as we're in the middle of this coronavirus panic, it's something you should be wiping down on the regular anyway. So That's right. So clean may... your
0: phones. Exactly.
1: Yeah. This article doesn't get into whether the <laughs> smell retains. My guess is that as they're synthesizing the carbon aerogel from it. It probably is. It probably renders it out. But if not, would that be the worst thing? We'll just clean our phones more often. Right? That's right. That's what Win-win. Right. You just
0: have a general sense all the time that it needs cleaning. Butt exactly. <laughs> fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Yay,
1: but fruit. <laughs> Next link.
0: Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, I have another disgusting Yay! food-related one. This is our theme today, apparently. <laughs> so we're all very familiar with the idea of the personal injury lawsuit, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think if most people, if they were to think about a personal injury lawsuit, they would think about the woman who spilled McDonald's coffee, yeah. on her lap, right? Which was a totally legit suit. By it the way, it was, yeah, it absolutely was. It got she got a lot of crap for a lot of years, and then people started looking into it. They're like, oh no, actually. She had like third degree yeah. burns and had to go to the hospital. It was major. Yeah. And she wasn't even asking for that much. It was just you should pay my medical bills because right. you absolutely destroyed my life. Yeah. Anyway, the reason that that woman was able to sue at all for a personal injury and that type of lawsuit apparently goes back to 1933 in Paisley, Scotland. Hmm. This is an article from narratively.com by Veronica Bondarenko. It's called The Woman Who Found a Snail in Her Soda and Launched a Million Lawsuits. <laughs> so she was the first. She They had the idea of a personal injury lawsuit, but at that point, it was only for a product which was inherently dangerous. Oh. Like if you, I, I'm struggling to think of what the 1933 version of it would be, but if you had a chainsaw, and that chainsaw injured somebody. The chainsaw was inherently dangerous and you should have somehow not been selling that product to begin with. Mm. But the idea of a product that was defective mm. was something that a couple of times they had tried to take before the court and the courts had always thrown it out. So this woman, her name was May Donahue. She went out to a lovely little cafe with a friend. She got a ginger beer float which we would call ginger ale and a big scoop of ice cream mm. in it. And as she's uh, sipping her delightful drink, she finds this crushed snail. <gasps> oh, it was crushed. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, it was it was gooey. It was pretty <clears> bad. <throat> and so she's horrified, and they complain to the manager, and the manager's kind of like, it happens. So she went home, and she was a little bit upset, but about three days later, she came down with severe abdominal pain. Yeah, because crushed
1: snail. Yeah, no,
0: it was probably just super <clears throat> Yeah, disease-ridden and just gross. But three weeks after that, she ended up being in the hospital (gasps) with severe gastritis and shock. So it definitely, like the woman with the hot coffee Mm -hmm. in her lap, it was worse than just, ooh, that's gross. Like, it really, truly made her very ill. So she found a lawyer who was willing to take her case pro bono and he seems to have this seems to have kind of been a chip on his shoulder as well his name was Walter Leachman and he (laughs) I know his name was Leachman (laughs) well you know it's on brand for the case but he had filed a couple of cases like this in the past and had always been thrown out but he was just really determined Mm -hmm. and they got hooked up and he took her case pro bono because she was very poor this was in the national consciousness at that point was this idea that lawsuits were for rich people Mm. rich people used lawsuits to protect themselves and get justice but Mm -hmm. they weren't for poor people right at all. And probably still true to this day. Yep. But they filed for five hundred pounds in damages and fifty pounds in court fees, which today would be about forty five thousand dollars. So not even I mean, frankly, here in America, that's one medical bill. That's Yeah. you know, they weren't asking for that much. But of course, the soda company, Stevenson's, they fought back. They said that the alleged injuries are grossly exaggerated. Any illness she suffered was due to the bad condition of her own health at the (gasps) time. Rude. And she was just destroyed in the press. Like, people said she was crazy. They said she was lying. She was in it for the money. They started talking about how she was married, but she was separated from her husband because he was abusing her. But in that time, the idea of being separated from your husband made her untrustworthy. Right. Moral failing. Right. And then they also started suggesting that the friend she had gone to the cafe with was actually a lover. Uh, What a smear campaign. Yeah, they absolutely tried to destroy her. And it didn't matter. She won. But of course then Stevenson's appealed and she appealed the turnover mm-hmm. of the case and it went back and forth until it went all the way up to the House of Lords which is effectively the Supreme Court mm-hmm. in the UK at that time and Judge Lord Alexander Moncrieff ruled, tainted food when offered for sale is in my opinion amongst the most subtly potent of dangerous goods. Ooh. And that was that was it. That set the bar for every personal injury lawsuit to come in the future. It was the precedent. Yeah, to this day that particular case is still cited wow. and and it established what they call a duty of care, which says the manufacturer has a responsibility to not be negligent mm-hmm. in the thing they create, fully aside from whether that thing is dangerous on its own. Mm-hmm. And it didn't do her any good. No. Ultimately, they actually reduced the damages. She only got 200 pounds, which is about $18,000 today. And by that point, five or six years had passed. It really didn't do anything to help her. And her reputation was so trash. Yeah. In the smear
1: campaign, there was no coming back from that, I'm sure. Yeah, no, her whole life was pretty much just ruined uh. by this thing.
0: But in 2018, she got commemorated with a statue. Somebody carved a nice little statue at the site of the former cafe in Paisley, Scotland. Was she holding her ginger float? No, she she was actually holding her grandchildren because it was so long after the fact it was based on a photo and it was pretty much the only photo of her Mm. they had. Mm. So it was, you know, a sad story for her. But now... We can all sue for snails and our sodas. It's become so commonplace.
1: It's hard to imagine a time when that was not the case.
0: Well, and I was surprised that it was relatively recent. I mean, 1933, I don't know. You feel like it seems like such a logical thing to me that if something truly injures you, it gives you gastritis that puts you in the hospital. Mm -hmm. That's something where they should at least compensate your medical costs, your, Mm -hmm. your fundamental damages that you suffered. But as recently as 1932... Yeah. That wasn't the case. It was just assumed like, yeah, that was the risk you took drinking that soda. So I know that some food manufacturers
1: will have things like, you know, there's an acceptable amount of insect parts or rat right, parts right. that, you know, parts per million of rat feces. Exactly. So does that interfere with or is that just them stating up front, this is our duty of care. We're aware of it. We're trying. It's unavoidable, especially when you get to large scale manufacturing plants and processing plants like
0: that. Right. Well, and I think that's sort of the government saying, okay, we've established this duty of care, Mm. but we're also going to acknowledge, like you said, it's impossible to keep everything out. And perhaps they've said this is the level that we're assuming will not hurt anyone. Yeah. That anybody can consume a little rat feces and it's not going to make you that sick. Deemed acceptable. That's right. (laughs) There are limits, but eh, they're higher than you'd like them to be. (laughs) High in
1: protein. That's right.
0: (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link.
1: Have you ever wondered why so many cats have white socks on their paws? I have not. But now that I think
0: about it, that is interesting that that's where the markings go. (laughs) Damn interesting. Damn. I might
1: even say. Uh, Well, this article by Grant Curran, a live science contributor. Basically kind of attributes it to domestication and human bias when it comes to domestication. So we know that cats kind of started getting domesticated around 10,000 years ago, which especially compared to dogs is a much shorter time length. And the idea was that the wild cats that had started to kind of like hang around and grain storage facilities and things like that as agriculture really started to spin up. Most of these cats, when they live in the wild, are highly camouflaged. But evolution and
0: genetics, <laughs> they create these abnormalities. They right? don't look like a grain silo. They look like the woods. Right, right. <laughs> they look like the woods.
1: But then when they started to kind of show up with these, you know, markings that might make them more easily identified as both because cats are both prey and predator. Right? OK,
0: right. Uh-huh. And so
1: when they lack that camouflage, that can be a disadvantage to them in the wild. But it can be an advantage to humans
0: because we can spot them more easily. They're more identifiable, and we. The theory goes that we like to feed cats. We want to find them, and so that's that. That's a benefit to them if we can. Pretty go, much, oh, yeah. Look
1: at the cute kitty. Yeah, or just hey, look. That's the cat that we know has been coming around, but it's been killing a lot of our rats. So we're going to continue to feed the cat so it can continue to get rid of all of the pests and the parasites that are infecting our food supply. And so it began to show sort of a preference for the cats that have identifiable, non camouflage markings are the ones that we show preference to in terms of. Housing, feeding—you know, right? We've
0: built a relationship with that exactly. cat. Exactly, that's pretty much it. And and so, was there any connection to the fact that the white paws are cute, like socks? Like, is there that <laughs> idea of like, oh, look, he's got little, he's got a little tuxedo? <laughs> like, why why are not all of our cats evolutionarily adapted to look like tuxedo cats? I feel like that's something that we've been pressing for pretty hard. That,
1: that's true, and I think that when it, you talk about breeding specific cats, there are definitely traits that mm-hmm. will start to show up to the point where if they don't really fit this idealized breed approved model that they're destroyed or just given away they're not used for showing anymore so i think once humans started really selectively breeding specifically intentionally for these physical traits just to suit our fancy yeah all bets
0: are off at that point we're choosing really actively what we want to see
1: but as far as like the domesticated cats we do see a lot more even for the mutts or the ones that are not purebreds we do see more of these non-camouflage type markings which can include a lot of socks and maybe sometimes the cravat on the That's chest. right, the little chest diamond. Yep. It's yep. very cute. And we also may have selected for cats who are calm and comfortable around humans. That's part of the Well, sure. That's, I
0: think, true of all the animals. Is if they're going to be domesticated, they got to be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not going to put yeah. up with a mean one. <laughs> don't, don't be a dick.
1: You can hang around. That's right. right. We'll feed
0: you all the rats you want. <laughs> but for
1: reasons that scientists still don't fully understand, white spots tend to appear when the tamest individuals are selected and bred. And this is true not only for cats but also for horses, pigs,
0: mice, cows, and rats. Interesting. So all animals, basically, the nicer they are, the less camouflage they have.
1: Yeah. And the more sort of flashy coloring starts to appear, I guess. And wow. they're not still really sure why that correlation or if right. it's What's even the correlated. Right. What's the direction there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think back to that Siberian fox experiment where they domesticated foxes over, I think, maybe, you know, just a few generations, less than we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And it was a very controlled experiment. And they had found, you know, signs of domestication, like the ears started to kind of flatten back a little. The eyes started getting real big and cutesy. Right. Right, a lot more of the calico or white spotted patterning started to show up.
0: Well, now I know. Now I'm going to start. I want to start breeding for like an aggressive, highly (laughs) camouflageable cat.
1: (laughs) On a side note, please don't. No, no, no. no. I'm not. (laughs) I think Bengals may kind of fit the bill on that one. They're kind of, they've been bred specifically from like some of the more wild ancestors that mm-hmm. currently exist of the domesticated cat. And so they've got that spotted coat, which makes them a little bit more camouflaged. A little tigery. Yeah, they're definitely feisty. They're known to like water and like playing in water a lot more. Huh. They, they can be walked on a leash more readily than other Oh, yeah, that's very other strange. <laughs>
0: That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're also
1: very high maintenance because they've got that, you know, drive to play and
0: murder because all cats are little serial killers. yeah. Sure. And so yeah. if you
1: do not have the time, they're almost like the border collie of cats.
0: Right, like you got to burn that energy exactly. off. Otherwise, they're going to destroy your yeah. house. Yeah, it'll
1: redirect in ways you could not possibly imagine and probably won't care for. And
0: then you won't be able to find them because their camouflage is going to be so good. <laughs> They'll be under the bed and you'll be like, I don't see them.
1: <laughs> yes, you rewild the
0: cat to the detriment <laughs> of all. Next link. Next, Next link. link. So now we're going to go a little dark. Uh, This is from JSTOR. It's called The Study of Human Anatomy and the Corpses of Vienna. so apparently in the 19th century vienna was absolutely renowned for its corpses not just the quality of its corpses but (laughs) the ease with which one could attain a corpse because of course this was the time when doctors were first really really getting into dissection and Mm. anatomy and saying look we got a dead body let's cut it up and see how these organs really work it had all been theoretical at that point right and then you know when they start cutting them open they're like on the one hand I'm cutting apart a dead body, which is sort of not cool with our Roman Catholic nature. On the other hand, I'm learning so much and this is going to help me with surgery. So it was a really exploding industry at that time. Mm -hmm. But there was still some squeamishness about how do you get a body Mm -hmm. that you're allowed to cut up. And apparently it was extremely relaxed in Vienna to the point that doctors in other countries, American doctors and German doctors, it was sort of understood that you were going to do basically a little study abroad. To go to Vienna to learn anatomy and surgery and dissection because oh. it was so much easier to get bodies in Vienna. Mm-hmm. So this article basically historically goes into why was it so easy to uh, <laughs> just pick up a corpse on the way home in Vienna? And it was there's the open air markets, right? right yes, open air corpse yes, markets, right on out there. <laughs> so there were a couple of reasons. Uh, they noted that at this time, sort of all across Europe, there were some new laws. That started to regulate things because grave robbing had always been a thing, Mm. not just for bodies, but for the idea of stealing the things that people were buried with. And as the medical needs became higher, grave robbing became much more lucrative. Mm -hmm. So more people were doing it. And it sort of made the upper classes uncomfortable to imagine that their rich old granny was going to have her grave robbed. Mm. And so because of this pressure from the upper classes, the government started passing laws saying, OK, you can have the poor people's bodies for free. So that you'll leave the graves of the rich people alone. <laughs> nice. So, for example, Britain passed the 1832 Anatomy Act, which, while it's dressed up in some fancy language, effectively says if a poor person dies in a workhouse, we're not even going to bury him. We're just going to head him straight to the doctor Dang. and let him let him work with it. And the It's poor... almost like a
1: forced donor right, program.
0: Right, right. It absolutely was. And then they later actually had true forced donor programs through the hospital. The guy who ran the hospital, his name was Carl Rokotensky. And he ran the general hospital in Vienna, which this was another reason why it worked so well in Vienna. Their hospital system was nationalized. And Mm -hmm. was one of the first ones to do that. Previously, it was generally a thing where like rich patrons would sort of just give a lot of money to keep the hospital going. What an outdated model. Sure glad that doesn't (laughs) exist Yeah, we don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But then in Vienna, they were very forward thinking and they had a nationalized hospital system with free point of use healthcare, which Mm -hmm. uh, everybody really liked. Mm -hmm. And the payoff for that was If you died in the hospital and weren't paying your bill, the donation of your body was considered fair trade for that payment.
1: That seems super logical. And
0: they actually made it kind of clear up front to the people. So at least, you know, people had the understanding of, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Manage expectations up front. And they said there was one other thing. They said, actually, the Roman Catholic nature of Vienna at that time was a particular strain of Roman Catholicism. When popes died, when saints died, when rich people died, your body was not just buried. It was embalmed. The organs were removed and preserved because they were holy relics. Mm-hmm. And they would send the organs to like all the different churches across everywhere. Like this place would get this guy's heart and this other place would get his liver. And mm-hmm. that was already sort of part of the religion as it was practiced in Vienna at the time. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having your body cut up just wasn't quite as disturbing mm-hmm. to a lot of the populace as it would be to mm-hmm. someone else. It almost was a little bit of an elevation. Like, yeah. Ooh, I get to get cut up like the rich people do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow, the class distinctions applied to this are super interesting. Yeah, and they
0: go kind of backwards to what you would think. It's like, you know, the idea of the rich don't want their bodies cut up, so they make the poor do it. But then the poor are like, oh, I get to be cut up. Like, there's just a (laughs) lot of weird directionality going with that stuff. So it became very, very easy, long story short, to get a body in Vienna. They had a whole uh, conveyor belt of bodies coming out of the hospital straight in for the doctors. And there was at least a little bit of that forward thinking, hey, we should support science. It's good. Yeah. We're learning stuff. Yeah. It's not just for fun. These doctors are actually right. getting something out of it. Yeah. So that was pretty much it. It was just a historical examination of uh, all the bodies in Vienna. And now it's very easy to get bodies everywhere, I guess, or we're just done cutting them up. I mean, you still have to practice surgery. So I imagine there's still at least a certain need for donated bodies. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's still something that is I have elected to be an organ donor. And I've recently been working with my dad on his estate planning. So he's been really clear, like he wants to donate his body to science. He doesn't want to be buried, cremated. He wants to have utility and usefulness to the world, you know, at a larger
0: scale after his passing. I guess that's true. I hadn't really thought about that. But if you're an organ donor... For medical purposes to save someone else's life, mm-hmm. if that doesn't happen to be necessary or your organs are all jacked up and mm-hmm. they don't want them, you're still a donor. You're just donating yourself yeah, do in an educational sense, right. <laughs> which we definitely should because it's super wasteful to be embalming these bodies and just sticking them in the ground anyway. Like oh, that's, yeah. That's not a great plan. Fully aside from whether you're going to be donated, you can be cremated, you can be composted. There's yeah. other options. But yeah. this fill us full of chemicals and just stick us down there. Yeah, is... to
1: eventually poison and rot the earth. I mean, that. Well, and
0: they're running out of space. They're going to have to dig you up anyway. So yeah. you might as well be somewhere. <laughs> and if you're not, just go with the Roman Catholic thing that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to preserve your heart and send it to <laughs> Our Lady of the Sacred Organs.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just make sure to be real explicit about that in your will.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because otherwise they're going to do what they want with you. <laughs> All right, next link.
1: Next, next link. link. Well, since we were kind of shrouded in darkness there, let's, let's turn to the sun. According to Alex Hutchinson at Outside Magazine, there's new evidence on the benefits of sun exposure. So recent studies suggest <laughs> that sunlight may lower blood pressure in ways that have nothing to do with vitamin D.
0: Okay. You you giggling? You already got some thoughts on that? Well, I was just remembering the thing that went around just recently about the the taint sunning that people did. And like, it was just, you saw these horrible photos of people with their legs akimbo up to the sun. It's just, oh. JP
1: Sears, who's a a comedian that has a pretty large presence and his whole bit is that he's like a super woke hippie. He's the guy that has longish red hair. Okay. If you don't follow him, I highly recommend him. And he's got a great video where he talks about perennium sunning. That's right, that's and, right. And demonstrates <laughs> it with- Taint is not the
0: official medical yeah, term. Yeah, <laughs> with
1: careful blurring. Yeah, apparently, uh, my husband was telling me there's a, a guy in India who claims he has not eaten for 30 years because he's getting all of his nutrients from sunlight. Oh, which, okay, wow. You know, well, dubious uh, source yeah. and I heard it from
0: or heard it from, but you know. <laughs> but this is just natural in the sun. We're not talking specifically about- Places where the sun doesn't shine. That's right. We're talking about (laughs) normal sun exposure here.
1: Yeah. On the heels of an article last year that Outside Magazine did that went totally viral. And it was basically called, is sunscreen the new margarine? Where it was looking into, you know, we think that it's good for us because, yeah, it's preventing cancer. But are there other things that it's doing to jack us up and might even be filtering out sunlight we need for chemical processes that are actually beneficial to us?
0: And by margarine, you're talking about the idea of like, we thought it was better, but actually it was worse. See, I was imagining like slathering yourself with margarine in the (laughs) sun. I was like, I don't think that's going to help. Do
1: not (laughs) recommend that strategy, I'm going to give you a lovely
0: golden (laughs) crispy skin. But
1: (laughs) but there are benefits to sunscreen. Absolutely. Skin cancer
0: is a very real phenomenon that we have very real data on. Right. Well, and my understanding is that it's much more connected to how much you get in a single exposure. If you're getting just a little bit of sun every single day, Mm -hmm. you're doing much better than even one burn. You right. You know, because that you once you overdo it, you've done damage. It takes a long time to repair that damage. Yes. So it's striking the right balance
1: between prevention, but this is calling into question is, you know, how much is too much or not right. enough? Right. What's the
0: appropriate amount? Yeah. Does, and... it, does it tell me? Can I have an answer? Because...
1: <laughs> We're still working on it. Of course. Womp, womp. <laughs> but this study that's being talked about here, um, the basic gist of the research that was reported is on the risks of skin cancer, and we know those are very, very real. They may be less serious than we think, while the benefits of sun exposure are far greater than, than we we've... previously thought. Exactly. So one of the key planks of the argument in this piece was that ultraviolet radiation from the sun triggers the release of nitric oxide from your skin into your bloodstream, where it has wide-ranging effects, including lowering blood pressure. What More importantly, what it's also saying is that there's something about sunlight that cannot be replaced with vitamin D supplements.
0: Right. It's not the same as just popping that pill and saying, I got my sun for the day. Exactly right.
1: But it's still imperfect. We still don't have all the answers. We still don't have a good recommendation for you. And there are additional caveats with this too. For example, there's a chart on the article that shows that black patients had consistently higher blood pressure even through these different seasonal and
0: temperature and UV variations. Sure, well, because the melanin prevents them from absorbing as much sunlight. That's
1: part of it. I mean, there are obviously other factors like socioeconomic factors, dietary patterns, sensitivity to salt is a factor that can also Hmm. come into play. But you're right, the skin itself may play a role because darker skin tends to be more naturally protected against UV-induced damage. It's great for avoiding sunburn, but may be a disadvantage for triggering that nitric oxide-related benefit of lowering blood pressure you know, the end of the article basically says no consensus. We don't have a clear prescription yet. Opinions range from get 10 minutes of unscreened sunshine
0: per day to as long as you don't burn, you're fine. So we're still working yeah, on we're it. We're kind of but... trying to narrow that range down yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but... yeah. this is totally unrelated. It was an, actually one of the damn interesting articles from a couple of weeks ago that I didn't get a chance to talk about, but it was talking about the idea that they are now starting to correlate sunlight exposure with nearsightedness. <gasps> that actually nearsightedness is is generally a growing epidemic. There is a significantly greater number of people who require glasses than there were even 50, 60 years ago. Huh. There is a little bit of a genetic component to it, but they say even considering the genetic component, this is something physical, something mm. environmental is causing this. And of course, there's a ton of possibilities right. of exposure to chemicals and whatever. But they noted that exposure to bright light, basically looking at the sun, being outside when it's bright shortens and slows down your eyeball growth. And so being indoors doesn't ever put that those sort of natural breaks on the growth of your eyes and they end up overgrowing, which is what nearsightedness is, is mm-hmm. the eye is too long. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, not being in the sun as a child as you're growing, you know, there's they so, sort of cited some critical mm-hmm. points at which you're doing a lot of growth in those areas. That will absolutely affect whether you're nearsighted. Which was crazy to me because I was extremely nearsighted. I was one of those people genetically, it doesn't matter how much sun I got, I was still going to be nearsighted. Yeah. But it was, I, I had my first pair of glasses at like the age of two, I think. Whoa! Yeah, like, I, and, and they knew beforehand. It was like as soon as I could walk, I was running into stuff. And they're oh. like, oh yeah, she can't see. We're going <laughs> to clearly need to get this done really quickly. And I actually had LASIK and even post-LASIK, I still wear glasses. Dang. But I was I was glasses free for about 10 years. I got a good 10 years out of it. But as you age, right. your eyes continue to change shape. And the deal with LASIK is because they're removing parts of your cornea, mm-hmm. they're shaving it down. There is a minimum thickness, yeah. at which point you can't take any more off. Right. And I'm at that minimum thickness. And they said, you can't have any more LASIK. <gasps> but you can just wear this really nice, thin, light pair of glasses instead of the big Coke bottles you wore Yo, as a kid. Yeah. Which I'm like, fantastic. That works great. I can Did wear glasses. Did you go
1: farsighted as opposed to ne- or you- No, no. I was nearsighted. Yeah. Are you still nearsighted now? I am now? still a little
0: bit nearsighted. Yeah. Wow.
1: Dang. Yeah. And
0: I am also getting that thing you get when you're older where you start to also go farsighted. Right. right. And so uh, my husband laughs at me. I have to put – I have a pair of reading glasses. But because I'm really stubborn and don't want pr- progressives or bifocals or anything, I just put the reading glasses over my existing glasses. So And it's fine. I'm not out in public. I'm just sitting at my laptop with two pairs of glasses on. And he thinks it's absolutely ridiculous. It's and so I'm, steampunk, dude. I know. But I'm like, look, I. you know what? I need them for just a second. I'm going to take them off. At some point where I need the reading glasses a lot, maybe I'll go and get bifocals or whatever but right now it's like it works <laughs> for me and <laughs> I, I'm
1: basically like the better case scenario of you like I had to get glasses in the second grade because I was squinting in the teacher noticed notice that I was squinting. Right. my vision got was also nearsighted I got to negative 10 in each eye Yeah, see
0: that like that's a bad prescription a strong, that's where I, I was I was yeah. on the
1: very edge of what they could actually treat for Lasik right got the Lasik I may be coming around my 10 year mark of when I got it done so
0: they might tell you you don't have enough cornea oh, left I'm oh, sorry to I tell you hear it. Oh. but you know what you may have now naturally thicker corneas than I do. Maybe you got more room to. uh, Who knows? No one else
1: in my family had eyesight nearly as bad as me. And maybe it was because I was a bookworm and was right. Didn't go outside. Didn't go outside as much. I mean, I did, you know, softball and whatever, but I definitely was more of an introvert with my activities than being outside in the sun. But with that information and the sunscreen information, you know, I'm starting to do this thing where, like, I'll walk my dog in the morning without sunscreen. Oh, for sure. Just to get a little bit of that unscreened, and then I'll kind of put the sunscreen on, not only to stave off skin cancer, but... I'm a little vain. I want to right. keep my skin as wrinkle-free as possible. So. See, I'm
0: I'm more lazy than anything. I don't I'm I don't put on any sunscreen unless I'm like at the beach, like where yeah. it's a place where I'm going to burn. And even then, I put it on, and I still get a little pink. like it doesn't it doesn't seem to help that much. I'm sure it does. It would be much worse if I didn't. But the idea of like daily sunscreen that's that's a step too far. I just I'm too lazy to, well, to make that effort. Well, science
1: may validate your lazy. Yeah, it says
0: I'm doing I'm doing Stay better tuned. because of it. I'll
1: keep that in mind. Next link.
0: Next link. We got another scientific examination of the body here from the the University of Arkansas. This one uh, does not have anything to do with the sun. It has to do with caffeine. Oh, so uh-oh. caffeine has a little bit of a character stereotype in the idea that brilliant creative minds need a lot of caffeine, mm-hmm. right? You've got the programmer drinking the energy drink. Mm-hmm. You've got the artist who has to have his six cups of coffee. Mm-hmm. It's really sort of mythologically tied into the idea of being a creative person, Yeah, like a lot of other substances mm-hmm. to be honest. Or but, productive as well. That's right. Well, and that's, yeah, It's it sort of jazzes you up and makes you able to do your job better is the narrative that we've been going with. Yeah. And it is true that There are quite a lot of studies confirming the cognitive benefits of caffeine, such as increased alertness, improved vigilance, enhanced focus, and improved motor performance. Mm. So athletes and things might actually benefit from a little caffeine. But what this study covered was something that had apparently not really been looked at before, which was the idea of convergent versus divergent thinking. Convergent thinking being the kind of problem-solving where there is a correct answer. Mm. And that is what has always been studied, the idea of if you have some caffeine, you're Mm going to do your math problems a little quicker. Mm -hmm. But divergent thinking is that sort of of creative— Out-of-the-box. Right. Come-up-with-a-solution-type thinking. So a classic divergent thinking test would be you have a brick, list as many things as possible that you can do with that brick— in the next five minutes open-ended right so just start generating as many creative ideas of what you can do with a brick and it should be said as well children do much better on this type of test than adults do Mm. just in general so like an adult they might say okay you could use it as a doorstop. you could use it as a paperweight whereas a kid will say oh you could throw it at a robber to stop them you could tie a bow on it to make it a birthday present their Mm. ideas are just not constrained by the same structure that an adult is because by the time you're an adult You've had that beaten out of you by the system. (laughs) Well, and you've also
1: learned by experience what is more or less likely to continue showing up or the utility of something, whereas it's all just possibility for a a child. Right, exactly, exactly.
0: Perhaps there is a benefit to the idea of as an adult, you can prune the things that aren't really that useful. Mm -hmm. Or as a kid, it's just like, ah, the world is my oyster. I can (laughs) use a brick to open an oyster. (laughs) (laughs) So this researcher, Daria Zabelina, from the University of Arkansas, gave specifically a test where she gave 80 volunteers either a 200-milligram caffeine pill, which is about equivalent to one strong cup of coffee, or a placebo, and then just gave them a lot of divergent, convergent, working memory, general mood. They tested a lot of different factors. And the results are sad for artists. Uh, It had no positive effect on divergent thinking at all. Yeah, it just does not make you more creative. However, she did note that it didn't make your divergent thinking any worse. So drink up. It's not going to harm your creativity. And most participants reported an improvement in mood from the Mm. caffeine. Mm -hmm. And that alone may sort of help you get into the creative place Mm. better if that sort of yeah, a unless thing that you're, you're able one of those like
1: sadness and tragedy motivated. That's artists, true. That Maybe could really that. impair your
0: art. Yeah, you got to keep the caffeine <laughs> off because otherwise you're not going to be depressed enough to make art. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I wonder how that would work with like a lot of the trend in microdosing hallucinogens. Like that's true. N- we we need, w-
0: need to study that next. Right. Just
1: you know, you have your daily cup of coffee, which is going to boost convergent thinking and probably productivity and a bit of a mood boost. Mm-hmm. Maybe you just you know, microdose with a little bit of mushroom, a little bit of LSD, and then uh,
0: their power. Combined. Right? Because if you do just the microdosing of LSD, you're probably be like, I'm gonna lay on the couch all day. <laughs> I'm not gonna get
1: anything done. Well, the idea with microdosing is that you're still completely functional. Sure, you're, just you're not subtle actually shuttle boost so you know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I, not
0: something <laughs> Public I'm, disclaimer. That's right. <laughs> this is all hypothetical. Pour <laughs> one out for the artist. That's, right. that's right. That's give him, right. Give him an extra cup if you want him to work a little harder. <laughs> but you're not going to get any better material out it's of him. It's
1: always struck me as a productivity drug anyway. And that's why it is, you know, it remains legal. Because it's still a right. psychoactive substance. It, it,
0: it Absolutely it, affects you, for sure. It affects you,
1: the brain and the body, but it's one of those things that kind of like alcohol fits in well with the kind of, you know, capitalist structure where we have, which sure is we
0: appreciate it if you work harder. Exactly,
1: maximum productivity during the day, enough of a depressant with legal alcohol at night so that you don't have to think too hard about how bad so it can come are. down off
0: your caffeine high and then do it all over it's again. A vicious cycle, complimentary legal <laughs> drugs. Yep, so at the very least, we should add LSD into that mix. It seems only fair. It
1: seems, you know, <laughs> if we want that divergent thinking, which is innovative and involves a lot of the applications of stuff that we already have. There's a case to be made.
0: There is. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, let's pour
1: one out, whether it's a cup of coffee or maybe a 40, for the swamp wallaby. Because Catherine Wu at Smithsonian Magazine reports that a theory we've held to be true has now been proven. They can get pregnant while being
0: pregnant. The, OK, the swamp wallaby. That's right. But are they OK, does this live in Australia? It does. So there are swamps in Australia. I think there's everything. There must in Australia. be. Yeah, I just I don't really think of Australia as a swampy sort of place. It always struck me as more. <laughs> Desert, but, uh, but all right, so they a little got a bit swaps. of everything. I yeah. know that
1: New Zealand has every different climate represented within New Zealand, which is not a huge place, but they've got icy tundras, they've got deserts, they've got rainforests. Yeah. And that's not too far from Australia. That's true.
0: I think of yeah. them like my stereotype in my head is oh, yeah, New Zealand is lush and rainforest <laughs> and they have lots of stuff. And I'm like, Australia, nah, just a desert <laughs> and some cities. But I should not be so judgmental. No, They're very close no. to each other. If,
1: if you watch Flight of the Concords, there's a lot of really adorable New Zealand versus Aussie pride. And oh, culture. really? Yeah, have to look that up. Oh, if you've never seen that, I highly recommend that show. So uh, apologies in advance to any New Zealanders, to any Kiwis and Aussies that we may have inadvertently uh, That's right. stoked that rivalry with our offhand American comments. And
0: I apologize for assuming you don't have swamps. You clearly have swamps and you have wallabies in those swamps. And, and these poor deers can get pregnant <laughs> While they're pregnant. So is this? An, this is like they have a second baby in there, or is this one of those weird things where the fetus gets pregnant?
1: <laughs> oh, that's too much. That's too, too much. much. You All just right, cross good. the line. <laughs> I mean who knows what evolution's going to do in this new climate right. change world. But basically this is a decades old hypothesis that they were only able to prove recently with portable ultrasounds because the technology <laughs> has gotten good. But you know it's just given for... they're given swamp wallabies ultrasounds. <laughs> yes. Well how else? I mean cuz you know visually we've been looking at this for decades and we're like I I'm pretty sure <laughs> that just gave birth to a baby and still had a baby in it. But Yeah, we've basically been able to prove that the swamp wallaby, the wallaby a bicolor, can start a second pregnancy before finishing their first. And what they do is they alternate embryo implantations between two reproductive tracts each oh. with their own uterus and cervix. So these marsupials can congestate nonstop throughout their entire adulthood.
0: So they have fully two uteruses. They've just got a double system yeah. in there. Oh, yeah.
1: and <laughs> I mean, I've heard of some human cases. Like, I think there was a case in India recently where that was also the case. A woman had two fully functioning, functioning yeah. reproductive systems. She had a child then one shortly after, like, well within that nine months. And they're like,
0: how is this possible? And, and they... so she finally saw a doctor for the first time in her life. And yep. they're like, oh. Literally what?
1: exactly what happened. Wow. There. Yeah. So basically as soon as these wallabies reach sexual maturity, these females are, quote, perhaps, unfortunately, pregnant all of the time. Perhaps This is Brandon Menzies, a biologist at the University of Melbourne. Tacking on the months-long stints of suckling once offspring are born, female swamp wallabies may end up supporting three young at once. Yeah,
0: because they got one in each oven and then one on the... (laughs) Yeah, they got an
1: older joey that's left the pouch, a young one nursing inside of it, and a fetus that is yet to be born. Wow. It is non-stop, y'all. So maybe this is, it's a resilience. Well, you got to right? imagine,
0: evolutionarily, it makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, if this woman in India is doing all right with it in <laughs> another couple hundred thousand years, we may all have two uteruses. You know, and
1: the wallabies certainly need it with all of the brush fires that occurred in Australia. This That's true. This very well for the wallaby. And in the 1960s, a trio of researchers noticed that three females engaging in sex very late into their pregnancies
0: <laughs> and act that under... That's pe- also judgmental. Like, how dare they? <laughs> well,
1: for them, you know, from the scientific point of view without the moral judgments they were right. basically saying you know this has no reproductive benefit right why would you pregnant. do that yeah so there was no way to really study that so in 2015 menzies and his colleagues captured a small troop of wild wallabies they brought them in and kind of were going up to them check out what was going on and this is exactly what they found wow there's only one other mammal that is known to exhibit this behavior the european brown hare of course it's a rabbit oh right? yeah they can conceive for about four days before delivering a litter.
0: Four days? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And oh, by- whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. You're saying in the final four days of their pregnancy, yes. they can get pregnant. I it's thought pregnant you were yet. saying they get pregnant and four days later they have a baby or a litter of babies. <laughs> oh, that would be Lord. insane. Oh,
1: that would be, you know, they do get it over with faster, super quickly. rip the band-aid
0: off, you but know. But these
1: hares, by shortening the time between births, they can boost the number of offspring. So it's a numbers game. Sure. Right? I, like if you're like losing all if of evolution your- is. Exactly right. Yeah. The swamp walnuts are a little bit different because even though they're just Period lasts just a few weeks. Female swamp wallabies give birth only about once a year then spend the next 11 months nursing their fragile newborns in the pouch because they're
0: still pouch babies. Right, right? but so they can get pregnant during that time. That's why
1: this is... Exactly right. During that time, any new embryo that's already been conceived will enter a state of dormancy, waiting (gasps) until its older sibling is weaned before resuming growth. So
0: it understands, like, no, no, if I come out now, there's not going to be any food for me.
1: Exactly. There's kind of a pause button. So what this does is it minimizes the energetic demands on the mom so she can focus on churning out lots of nutrient-rich milk instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, nutrient rich embryonic development. Right. It's kind of like a little pause button. There is
0: a little bit of that in humans in the idea that you are less likely to get pregnant if you are nursing. Right. But that's just sort of a general hormonal thing. And I can tell you, it is definitely possible (laughs) (laughs) to get pregnant while you are nursing. Hot tip. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that for them, like the fetus is formed and then it just sort of pauses. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. it's it's
1: pretty pretty impressive. And also just I, I, I don't have children and every time I talk with <laughs> mothers or people who are pregnant, I'm like, You are you are doing some magical work there. Like, Thank you because I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. But oh the wallaby. So hopefully this spells well for their numbers rebounding after the horrible brush fires. Yeah it's good for them. I mean super mom. I
0: don't know if I really wanna be pregnant and nursing and, like, it's just hanging out. There. It's just waiting. Like a- <laughs> it's like waiting on the wings. It's like, I'm ready. As soon as you're done, I'm ready to jump in. <laughs> it's a tag team wrestling match. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, wallabies. Poor wallabies. <laughs> <laughs> but also, go wallabies. That's right. It's going to be good for you in the long run. Yeah. Just, you know, get through it for now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. You can go to Patreon.com slash Damn Interesting and support our podcast. You can also donate on DamnInteresting.com. Just include a note that it's for us and uh, it'll get passed on to the right folder. You can also on DamnInteresting.com check out some of the links that we did not get to today. Those include The Search for Aliens is about to get a serious upgrade, Dressing for the Surveillance Age, and Can You Really Hire a Hitman on the Dark Web? Some very interesting stuff there. <laughs> We hope that uh, you will go see those and some of the ones we've talked about today. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.